Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. Zach French is a bar-certified attorney, and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Welcome to the show, Greg. Glad to be here, man. Good morning. Uh, yeah, good morning. It is uh, the weekend of Halloween that we are recording this. I feel like I should have pumpkins behind me instead of these crypto beans. <laughs> I'm sure they're there somewhere in the uh, ecosystem. Yeah, there there are plenty upstairs. We're actually preparing for a uh, block party over uh, in my neighborhood right now. So I like it. Yeah, it's a very that's a that's a very popular thing these days. Yeah, but for COVID, I don't think we would have ever had it. Um, so thanks. I guess we got some positive out of it. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. Well, I usually start these shows uh, with my audience getting to know you a little bit better. And I know you have a super interesting background. So um, could you go ahead and uh, share with us your founding story? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I, that's a, that's tough billing. I'm not sure how super interesting it is, but I feel I feel very fortunate. You know, look, I've had a, uh, a really uh, charmed career, uh, you know, and I was very lucky that at a young age at 22, I found myself at the right uh, moment in time the perfect place and the, and the perfect moment in, in financial services in the United States. You know, I, I fell into American Express at age 22, and they were the only company at that time that was talking about doing, you know, financial planning, fee-based financial planning, comprehensive planning. These are like yawn topics right now, but back then they were cutting edge in an industry that was dominated by, you know, transactions and commissions and so forth. What I didn't realize is that I was starting in the number one office in the entire company, and I happened to be working with one of the top managers in the entire grid. And that really set my career off in the right direction. Also helps if you work 100 hours a week and you're smart enough to be dumb enough to uh, follow the <laughs> systems. And you know that set in motion a career almost 25 years with American Express and I was in private practice as a CFP. I sold my practice, and then I was an executive uh, with progressively more responsibility before, during, and after that company spun off to become Ameriprise Financial, which is one of the top broker dealers uh, in the United States right now. Nice. That is a very interesting path. I think um, you're hearing less and less of people working 100-hour weeks to start. Um, <laughs> so I know, I know how valuable that was back then. Um, let's kind of shift gears a little bit. I know you had a sure. good experience at, at Amex. Um, what kind of, I guess, core learnings did you take from that experience that led up to this kind of fall into Web3? And then tell us a little bit about uh, that inflection point. Yeah, I'll be happy to. You know, listen, I think one of the best things I did in my life is I, I took a sabbatical after all that time, you know, in the financial services industry. I did an MBA here in Atlanta, Georgia at Emory University. And there was a very influential professor uh, to me, uh, Ben Kaczynski. He's just an amazing gentleman, an incredible mentor. Uh, and I, th I know he's had a profound influence on a lot of people's lives. But Ben was all about not necessarily being a deep technologist, but helping people understand the nexus of where new technologies were going to have an impact on people's lives. And I've always gravitated towards subject matter ever since taking his class and then subsequently becoming a good friend. Um, I've always, always taken that with me. And about three years ago, I was approached with an opportunity to come into a project that was kind of dead on the table. And uh, it had to do with the digital asset space. And maybe I'll back up even a little bit further. My first exposure even to the world of blockchains 
came ironically at an insurance tech conference in Chicago back, I want to say in like 2013. And I happened to be at a breakout session and a briefing by two of the founders of Lemonade Insurance, something that many of the viewers may be familiar with right now. Back then, the concept of Lemonade Insurance, which was disrupting like totally the claims industry, uh, they were ridiculed and laughed at by all of these incumbent insurers. Now all of them are copying that model. But in that briefing, it was the first time I heard somebody utter the words blockchain in a heavy Tel Aviv Israeli accent, no less, <laughs> you know, and the blockchain and the this and the that. And um, I was like, what is the blockchain? And then that quickly brought me in and I thought, wow, immutable records, distributed ledger technology, the next innovation of accounting, Boy, that could be revolutionary on so many disciplines that I was uh, familiar with as an executive. But it wasn't until I went to Singularity University a couple of years later in San Francisco at their global summit that my mind started getting blown with the possibilities of, you know, um, you know, the crypto world, as some people are familiar with. But it was there that I first heard the words Web3. And that's where I first started really putting together the nexus of, of, of um, how you connect the dots, where, where the Venn diagram, all the shade comes in, the intersection of all of these cool technologies, the past and the future aligning. And um, so when in uh, two years ago, when I was approached to come into a project to help you know, resuscitate it, something that became Rubicon Crypto, which I co-founded and I now lead, uh, I think I was really ready for that. I was really ready for that opportunity. So I'm not sure if that helps you get a sense of how I came into the space. Yeah, it's interesting. I do want to dive a little bit deeper into the Venn diagram because yeah. um, it's you mentioned something very interesting, which is that you had a professor that focused not only on the technical understanding uh, yeah. of, of technology, right? Like how it works and all that, but really <laughs> what is the impact it has on our lives? Uh, and something that I'm trying to do here with the show is educate people about how Web3 can impact their lives through different brands, uh, which I don't feel like it's doing an adequate job of right now. Um, no. There's people like yourself and there's lots of thought leaders out there trying to advocate to change the perception. So when you went to Singularity and you saw what Web3 was and you started to imagine these Venn diagrams or frameworks when you were going yeah. through and how it would impact people's lives, what specifically were you starting to notice? <laughs> What I was noticing was that, that, that there was very, it was almost a total eclipse for those of, for those viewers out there that imagine these circles overshadowing and you think about a Venn diagram, <laughs> it's like, where is the shaded area, you know, of the two circles that merge? Like, where's the common ground? And the more I started thinking about it, man, there, there was, it was almost a total eclipse, right? Like the circles like completely overlapped and the portion that was not overlapping maybe it was the legacy web two industry that looked like it was going to be on the outside. And uh, to me, uh, that's what was so profound about, you know, thinking about the future uh, in terms of a web three lens, it's, it's going to impact virtually everything. But as you just mentioned, before you turned it to me, I think that the industry has done a horrible job in every dimension of digital assets, whether it's crypto, whether or not it's CBDC, whether or not it's regulation, whether or not it's Web3, of managing its brand and uh, not letting the narrative get hijacked by people that are dabbling or not really serious or are very busy people in the media and not really dialed into having a nuanced conversation. And I think we have an, a window of opportunity here to pull that back in. And uh, you're doing some great work in the narrative. You're doing some great work advancing conversations that, that I think are, are looking at this in a more uh, sober and strategic way. But I think we need more of it. I think we're just, uh, to me, it comes down to uh, just being pragmatic, right? Like Very much so. There is a lot of different things that we can uh, highlight that Web3 may help. Right. And yeah. I think that's the, the first step. Uh, and up to this point, the the guiding light has been philosophical. Uh, yeah. It's been decentralized decentralization maxis. Um, it's been, you know, uh, making sure that everybody is their own owner and that companies could be better yeah. if everybody if everybody that used their product or service was an owner. Mm -hmm. uh, and and 
and I don't necessarily disagree with some of those notions, right? Like I, I do hold those core philosophical beliefs. That's what drove me into Web3, but it's really abstract, right? Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is take it a layer down and say, okay, what is the practical way to implement these philosophies, right? If they do make sense. And like, what are the steps we have to take as a brand to get there? Have you been thinking about that at yeah, all? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course I have. And I think what you're touching on is it's, it's actually one of the biggest challenges. I'll, I'll, if you indulge me for a moment, but uh, um, I think what you're describing is what's wrong in many cases with, you know, traditional legacy business planning and strategic planning, whether it's in the government sector, nonprofit or corporations, we've over the last 15 years, I literally watched a company, a Fortune 50 company like Amex kind of fall into the same trap where we used to actually do strategic planning, like not five days, five weeks, five quarters. And I'm only teasing a little bit, like we would do five year planning. Like what does the business look like five years from now? Very rarely do you see in today's world that taking place. What I would argue is we're at a moment with Web3, we're at a moment with digital assets, we're at a moment where literally the future of money in our lifetime is going to be reimagined for the first time in a millennia. That's, you know, the industry that's prone to hyperbole, I would argue what I just said, that is not hyperbole. I think we're at a moment in time, a unique singular moment where people living today will be alive at the time where money and the future of money and exchange are being entirely reimagined. And one of the things that I like to put into this conversation, not to get too geeky here, but there's a lot to learn from history. As a matter of fact, my eldest daughter observed this, and this is not gonna sound as rando as you may think. We used to live in upstate New York in Onondaga County. And uh, we were, you know, in the midst of uh, Native American culture here in North America, the Iroquois tribe, and of all of the incredible innovations that they brought uh, to commerce and many other things, they also get credit for the notion of seven generation principles. And what their elders tried to do with really big decisions impacting the community was to think about the implications of those decisions, not seven weeks, seven months, or seven years out, but literally try to think about what the implications could be seven generations out and also anchoring those decisions with the lessons and the wisdom of the past. And so I, I think that if you, you couldn't ask for a more appropriate time than the moment we're in for people to pause, to think strategically and maybe borrow literally from the playbook of the Iroquois people and think about the future of Web3 and digital assets and so forth with a seven generation principles approach. And, um, you know, my daughter, who was a history major at King's College in London, she was listening to something I did in the media. And she's like, you know, uh, you know, if you're right about this moment in time, dad, you know, maybe some seven generation. I'm like, holy smokes, you're right about that, Devin. So, um, Love that. you know, there, there you have it. So that's how I'm thinking about our business. That's how I'm thinking about this moment. And that's how I'm trying to speak about the industry right now, because whether it's regulation for Web3, you know, whether or not it's the coding, you know, you and I had a chance to speak over coffee, you know, before we're doing the show. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the coding dilemma. There's a deficit of really thoughtful coding in the industry right now. I'm not picking on people. I'm just saying it is what it is. You know, you have a, a hacker community that almost is embarrassed to hack, you know, the, the exploits are so basic and we, and we are at the precipice of something really transformational with Web3, but you can't build the foundation of something transformational if it's so porous with crappy code. Yeah. I can barely spell code, but I know it, what bad code and the implications of it when I see it. So my challenge is for the, the technicians and, you know, the coders and the cryptographers out there is to take your craft more seriously and realize what's at stake from a, a seven generations perspective, maybe. That's interesting. So it's, you know, the that uh, what you just said started off with a 
how are we going to take a pragmatic approach, right? But yeah. in order to take a pragmatic approach, you've got to have a lens that looks very far into the future so that yes. you can, at the very least, hypothesize the impact of the decisions you make today, right? Yeah, yes. I, I think that for folks of a certain age, contemporaries of mine, plus or minus 10 or 15 years, and I'm old, I'm bringing up the median age on this podcast right now. But, uh, Let's go. <laughs> you know, I think what we chat, we, we challenge people when they're trying to understand digital assets in the ecosystem, Web3, or any of these concepts that uh, are, are unusual. We try to remind them, think about where we were 15 years ago, you know, think about, you know, what was your life like before you had one of these things, you know, I'm holding up a, I'm holding up a, you know, a smartphone uh, for people that are just listening and not on the, on the video stream. And, you know, imagine just how profoundly changed uh, human life is as a result of those. So do you really think that's it? Are we really done here? So now try to think about if this is what happened since 2006, 2007, my goodness, what might another 15 years be? I think we're going to have to think about managing you know, or defining exponential growth a little bit differently, right? So Moore's law, the rate of computational power and the exponential growth of it is slowing. So we're going to have to start thinking about new ways to measure where we see exponential movements. And I think that's, that's, it's hard for people to wrap around, but they need to aim maybe for seven generations. I'd settle for seven year thinking right now, to be honest with you. It's hard. In terms of how we would think about it. That's right. That's it's, right. uh, even seven years is hard. I mean, the, one of the most frequent, um, you know, kind of sidebar conversations on this show is NFT time or Web3 time or crypto time, whatever yeah. you want to call it, and how a month feels like a year. There's so yeah. much going on, it, yeah. like irrespective of Moore's Law, right? Like this right. is just the underlying like not hardware technology, the software side of the technology developing at a rapid pace and people starting to push the bounds of what is possible uh, using this blockchain technology. Now, I think uh, crypto was the original use case and now it's expanded into NFTs. And what you're hearing in the NFT world is a move from digital art and collectibles to what other things in our life could we make oh, better massive. by using these NFTs? Um well, yeah. as usual, as usual, you nail it. It's going to move away from just uh, you know Florida State football collectibles, which I know you're a big fan of. But the, <laughs> but the um, but the uh, got my Bobby the, Bowden football over here. You, yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> I, had to put, I had to put that. I had to tee that up for you. But uh, in, all, in all seriousness, um, uh, there is nothing wrong with you know high art moving to its digital form. There is nothing wrong with the notion of creativity being expressed in code and, you know, having a one of a kind, a collectible, be it high art, photography, you know, digital artistry. That's there's nothing, you know, sports, etc. That is an establishment credible legacy business, which is obviously going to move one standard deviation to digital. What you teed up, though, seriously is what is exciting about NFTs. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing and I'm participating and I'm observing conversations that are profoundly going to influence how corporations deal with their customers and how they engage their customers. I think you might even discuss, you know, with the power of Web3 decentralization, how companies and how customers engage with each other using NFTs as the you know, the, the point of entry. Um, and I think you're going to see innovations coming from, you know, rewards uh, um, business models like American Express membership rewards and Delta frequent flyer miles. And I think NFTs are going to be there. I think some of the challenges we see in society won't be eliminated, but we will see major improvements in terms of uh, personal identification. Uh, there will be incredible opportunities for it to do away with or mitigate the potential for voter fraud that I know is a hotly debated topic in the United States. You know, the, the, the power of these technologies and to do them in a decentralized way is going to, is going to be um, radically changed by the evolution of NFTs. So it's not just for, you know, your Coach Bowden collectible, uh, you know, kind of one of a kind NFT at the championship game, but uh, you get the idea. 
uh, it's really going to have a major implication on how businesses interact with their their uh, stakeholders and how consumers interact with those businesses. Back to Web3 principles and concepts. It's flipping the power dynamic. It's flipping the way that um, business and commerce uh, has been defined for so long. Yeah, you, you you bring up a very, very good point here and something that... Uh, every now and then, man, every now and then. <laughs> it's, uh, you, like, I've been really trying to press on the uh, willingness and the need to partner with corporations. And I think it's all part of like a fundamental belief in something called progressive decentralization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that you have a product or service first, uh, that is a business, uh, and then you figure out a way to decentralize, more or less. You know, in in one sentence, that's pretty much it. And what you have highlighted is that many of these corporations, uh, most notably Nike and Starbucks, I would say some of the biggest and most. Yeah. We don't know if Starbucks is successful yet, but I imagine they will be uh, with their stamps. Um, they have a business. They have mm-hmm. built that business, and they've built a brand that has a good narrative that has good framing that has terminology that's consistent that's daring and they're taking that and then they're putting that on top of an nft strategy which i think most of all we're going to stop hearing them called nfts as often right Mm -hmm. uh as starbucks has already done with stamps um but also they aren't using nfts as the sole strategy right like they're taking what they already have and they're putting it on top and i think that's what you're going to start seeing a lot more of i've even heard recently on a micro scale about uh an entrepreneur who was very successful uh who published a book on habits uh and now he's taking that idea of building good well-being and habits and becoming a service for nft communities right Uh, so it it can go either way, but the point being that he had a successful business before he even talked about Web3, right? right. And it's going to take a lot of taking a step back and realizing it, that you need to build that utility in uh, before you start to just launch NFTs. Because NFTs, to me, are in, in that sense, are more of a tactic than a strategy. That, that, what a, that's a great observation. I couldn't agree. I wish I could disagree with it. So we'd have more lively, uh, uh, more lively <laughs> podcasts here, but I can't, I can't disagree with that. But, you know, this goes back again to, you know, to the thoughtfulness about what's going on rather than all the gimmickry that, uh, um, you know, has kind of dominated the conversation with crypto and digital. And I can't, I can't, and this is across the board, every single stakeholder in that is trying to provide leadership and build whether it's in the regulatory realm. We need to be more thoughtful about what this is going to look like. Can you imagine for a moment, if we have to go back seven generations where we are, what what could seven generations be like? I mean, it's an, it's an insane concept. I realize that's a big thought. Most of our and ancestors weren't even here in America. They, they weren't even here. But, you know, I think yeah. you can look at a number of places where, you know, businesses did think through how how it would be necessary to to do things differently. You think about, you know, Henry Ford and not the inventor of the automobile, but thinking through how if there was going to be massive adoption of of transportation, private, personal, motorized transportation, how we would have to think differently about distribution, how we would have to think about that. You could argue Amazon, you know, basically for 13 years, all they did was stick to a vision about what the future of distributing uh, goods would look like, not just books, but all goods would look like, you know, when they were beaten up on their stock price, right? So they 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 certainly weren't necessarily seven generations, but they were uh, able to convince enough people to finance and support their efforts to build it out. And, and therein lies the need to be able to articulate this. You know, the you know, it's, 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 it's maybe a little bit less obvious, but when you think about the people who were the framers of the U.S. Constitution, uh, you know, candidly, that was a, an, an exercise that, you know, you know, it's probably the best example we have of a group of people who probably stole, you know, from the Iroquois nation, the notion of seven principles to think as thoughtfully as they did with how they framed that document to be able to evolve 
because uh, they couldn't have imagined you and I having a conversation about anything via technology. And they were, they, they were they also, do it. they were also in their twenties, most of these, yeah, which uh, is framers. That's a great, you know what, that's a, other than Franklin, right. Who was uh, yeah. in that case, he was bringing up the median age. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but, but this is the moment that we're in. And that's why I think conversations that you're facilitating and many others are facilitating that are, you know, not just, you know, there's nothing wrong. I, I want to make it very clear. One of the things I hate the most when I'm in a room of, let's say, traditional trad, trad fi executives. Trad fi. <laughs> okay. Because I know I get that's, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's, I guess, you know, I have that, you know, tag. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the reality is what I hate and I stay, I, I immediately interject whenever I hear somebody say it is I'll often, I'll often hear people say, we need some adults in the room. I can't stand that expression because the reality is the same adults that were in the room literally almost ran the global economy and the global financial system off a cliff. So those same adults, thank you. No, I don't think we need that. I think that's, I think that is really dismissive and arrogant, but what, what I do think it's what should be said is regardless of somebody's age, we need to have people that are making and influencing big decisions to think through, you know, a little bit more thoughtfully, maybe to have a, uh, an approach of, of, um, with professional, uh, maturity beyond somebody's age, if you will, not, 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 we need adults in the room. It's so dis- it's ridiculous. And, and I think we're, we're, we're looking at, we have a playbook here, right? What would Facebook do differently, right? They could have done some things differently yeah. uh, and been just as profitable, but maybe not have the drag, you know, that they're bringing in. Yeah. By the way, we could talk for hours about what's going on with their efforts in, you know, quasi web three and meta and so forth. And, I now won't call them Facebook anymore. I'll call them Meta, I suppose. But it's just ugh. if you get it right, you know. Did I reveal my time? true feelings about the social, <laughs> the social media players? Did I? Did well, I just we do can that? say oh one thing: God. they weren't thinking seven generations in the future. <laughs> that's my, you know, that's my point. And it's 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 easier to say this where you and I are sitting today. But then again, yeah. Then again, it, it comes with a sense that when, and I see this all the time, you think, you don't say, well, what could be the unintended consequences? Mm-hmm. Technology is always has the, for, the the potential to be used by the forces of good and not evil. It's a good mental uh, model you know, called a second order Vice versa, right? A lot of people think in second order consequences in the way that I usually try to teach people if they're, they're trying to think like, Oh, like truly is when the brilliant. iPhone came out, did we know that there was going to be Uber? That's a second order consequence of the iPhone. Now it's a positive exactly, one right. uh, in many, many facets. Um, right. But there's some other anecdotes that I was thinking of as, as you came up and uh, one, I'll start with a fact. Uh, yeah. Up until the last, I think 20 or so years, um, Supreme court justices <laughs> would make a practice of having clerks, that had different political beliefs than them. But for the past 20 plus years, uh, the Supreme Court justices have only employed clerks of their same political party. Now, on top of that, I'd like to also add that one of the wisest things I've heard from a friend of mine is you should try, since since we're in such a quick, like quickly developing area uh, and technology moves so fast, try finding a mentor that's in the generation younger than you. Absolutely. And it um, is but, such a magical experience. I have one now, right? Yeah. And I, I, I sought him. At first, I was very much a mentor to him. And yeah. now that the tables have turned and I'm starting to learn so much just by virtue of being open-minded to a younger generation's way of thinking and not yeah. dismissing them solely based off their date of manufacture. See, right. there you go. And then and that, that therein lies, it's just a matter of whether it's called mentor, mentee. It's just a matter of how, and this is hard, and this is the, you know, the, the spirit of why how some people stay young. And, you know, I think about examples of record executives who are still hip and hanging out with, you know, they're open minded and they are in learner mode. Mm-hmm. How, you know, and that's a, a challenge that I hope I will always be up to. 
which is how do I stay always in learner mode so that I'm ready for whether it's a, a mentoring conversation or whether it's just an interaction with somebody that generationally is not in the same belt as me so that I can, I can be, be open to that. Um, and I think, you know, for somebody, uh, you know, at, you know, at my stage in life, uh, to be, you know, diving in a hundred percent as we, as we are into this space, uh, hopefully that's an indication that so far I'm remaining open-minded. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think you would be running a crypto company period <laughs> if yeah. you weren't able to be open-minded right now, yeah. uh, which kind of begs the, what we, where we started this conversation, which sure. is that, uh, the perception's got to change where that shouldn't be the case, right? It should no. be that like, it's just another industry to go into because it is another opportunity to trade digital assets, right? Um, it, it just seems to me to be the most obvious. Again, the unfortunate thing is, is that the industry has been hijacked by uh, the frivolity. The fr I don't want to take the fun out of the industry, right. but if all we're defined by is the fun and... Um, you know, some of the more whimsical things uh, that are there. Um, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a shame. So, but it, it's, it's, it's so clearly the future of, you know, again, you, you, you have to be able to answer, I think a couple of questions when you start thinking about whether it's uh, paying attention to investing time or money into this space, you have to answer two questions affirmatively. <coughs> Excuse me. We talked about it. Uh, my apologies. We talked about it earlier, but you have to be able to say, do you or do you not believe that this is, uh, you know, the end of uh, technological innovation for human beings? So if you if you think we're done, if this is it, this is the pinnacle, then, you know, check, please. And, you know, go enjoy the rest of your life. And uh, we'll, I, we can agree to disagree. But if you believe that we're just getting started, as I do, you know, move forward and continue your exploration of Web3 and, uh, you know, digital assets and the future of money, by all means, please do that. And I think the second question, if you answered yes to the first is, do you think that more technological innovation will be directed or a, a large percentage of that innovation will find its way to digital uh, technologies having to do with what we're talking about? And if you can answer yes to both of those, then you should, you should be paying attention to it. You should be investing in it in a responsible way. Um, and, and that's something we believe very strongly. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, one cool. of the most powerful things that we spoke about uh, before we got on the mic yeah. um, was your role uh, and and the the persuasiveness that you have to endear on uh, almost a daily basis. Where you are in the TradFi world, you are in yeah. DC, you are talking to people, you're 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 teaching these people in certain ways. And the reason I want to move there, not only because I love the the analogies that you use is because uh, one of my core thesis around focusing on this perception problem is that Web3 has two distinct categories in which like they're devoting a ton of resources, but I think they're yeah. labeled wrong. Uh, one is education and two is community management, right? Um, I think both of those are very impactful in, in what they do say literally is what they are doing. But, but if you think about from a practical level, what the purpose of having education-based organizations like Web3 with me for and every single crypto company having some sort of educational arm, it is simply to onboard new customers, users, consumers, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and then the role of community management is to keep them around. And to right. me, but my my theory is that both of those are are marketing wrapped in a different nutshell, right? So how do you think about education in terms of onboarding new users? Because I feel like you have some of the most unique experience uh, that I've heard. You know, there's, it, you know, I've been, I've been uh, fortunate in that regard. But uh, you know, you, I think like all of us, we borrow from our own experiences as a way to help map out how we think about the future. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is very hard for the audiences that, you know, I mostly speak to, not always, but live is here in the United States. When we think about technology, when we think about pretty much any big thinking, we are so fortunate to have been, you know, uh, born and raised or worked or have been educated here in the United States, but it skews our view, right? We have such an American lens and the notions of 
digital assets and Web3, they are not American subjects. This, these are global human movements, technological movements. And uh, it does not, it is not going to be defined uniquely through an American lens. Let me give you an example of that. One of the things is we're educating people about digital assets in the community is I'll often get questions from people of a certain age, especially, uh, that they, they, can't, they cannot wrap around the notion of how, let's say, bit, just use Bitcoin for an example. How could Bitcoin have possibly have any intrinsic value if it's not backed up you know, by you know, the U.S. government? How could any crypto have any value if it's not backed up by a, a government? And this really does speak to the notion of what a privileged and American question to be able to ask. You know, we've been the, you know, the reserve currency for the globe, you know, coming out of the Bretton Woods Accords back following World War II. You know, we're, uh, you know, the world's largest economy. It's good to be number one. And I try to remind people before I, I give them an example to kind of open them up a little bit is I kind of remind them to say, well, listen, if you were born in Argentina, Venezuela, Israel, you know, Hungary, you know, any of these nations that have gone through, you know, any of the almost three dozen nations that have had hyperinflation this century, this century, um, you don't give a flying you know what about whether or not the government is backing up your money because it's what? It's worthless. So I say, put that aside for a second. Um, and I try to make the argument where I'll be like, Zach, you know what? Uh, I think I can prove to you that you or somebody very close to you participates quite frequently with a currency model that is not backed up by the U.S. or any other government. And of course, people are dismissive about it at first. But because I worked at American Express for so long and they were one of the first organizations to come up with a membership rewards or points mechanism, I can have a little bit of fun with them and say, you know, do you ever use your card? Of course I do. Uh, what happens when you use it? Well, I have to pay the bill. And say, well, do you get anything you like when you use the card? And if they don't get it, somebody will inevitably say, you know, I get points. Do you like points? I love the points. And I'll say to them, where do you keep the points? Are they in your pocket? Are they in the car? Are they in your house, in the safe, in the bank? And where, where do you keep your points? Uh, I, I don't know. And they're, they're, you, oh, you mean they're digital? You mean you use them to go on a trip or to buy something or to pay for an, uh, an event or a special uh, night out, but you, you never touch them? You mean they were out in the ether? And you can make an argument. I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that membership reward points or frequent flyer miles are crypto uh, or uh, you know uh, legal fiat money, but they have the same principles and they are digital. In other words, they're a medium of exchange, they're a unit of account, they're a store of value, and most importantly, with any monetary system, there has to be a social contract, right, between, you know, the entity that's, uh, you know, governing that, that particular currency form and the people that use it. In this case, you know, we're talking about American Express executives or the board of directors, they're the central bank, and all the card members are a part of that social contract where they believe these points are going to be there and they're worth something. Now, you may think this is trivial, but there are literally people walking among us that have more than 100 million points, many times that number. That's worth a, a decent amount of value, especially when you compare the value of some of the cryptocurrencies that are out there. I guess what I'm trying to say is going back to education, it's important to tie things back to where people might have some familiarity to disrupt them enough to now say, okay, if now you realize you're already participating in an economic system, whether it's once a year, twice a year, or in the case of American Express, they've expanded you know, exponentially the number of ways that you can use points and thus made a more vibrant, uh, moving kind of uh, uh, economic system, if you will. If you, can, if you can open up your mind to the fact that, uh, okay, I guess I have been without realizing it, and I never really touched them, uh, maybe I can be more open-minded to the future of money and mediums of exchange that digital assets have in mind. So that's one way that we try to educate people as it ties to 
you know, digital assets. And you may notice I try to I try not to say crypto very much um, because I just hate the word crypto uh, because it's such a horrible catch-all. Yes, cryptography is at the core of of the future of money. Um, but again, the brand of crypto has been hijacked so poorly. Crypto is cryptocurrencies are one sliver of the entire digital asset ecosystem. So, anyway, sorry for a rant there, but I, hopefully that was helpful to give you an example of how we tie these things all together. Uh, rant away. I mean, it <laughs> that hits on one of the core pieces of value that I'm trying to provide in the show, which is okay. let's, let's remove the labels and the archetypes, oh, the cryptos, the NFTs oh, you, from the things we're doing and think <laughs> about what the purpose of what we are doing is. Yeah, and that I mean, is that we, we, we are, are blessed with this opportunity to have a new way to transform the way that we transact. Okay. And well, if we think want- about that. Think about that for a second. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, two years ago, the conversation in the central banker club, the real elite academic economic central banker kind of uh, clubs out there was a very 2012 conversation about digital assets. It was not very nuanced and honestly quite pejorative, quite dismissive, quite let's leave the adults in the and I had the, the, the good fortune to attend the um, IMF annual meetings in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, without being cynical and so forth, the amount of work that, you know, those legacy Bretton Woods institutions like the IMF and the World Bank have done to advance developing economies, it's, it's pretty epic, to be honest. And I, I can tell you that I, I, get, I really was surprised that the, the number of, of um, breakouts and key sessions that were done, some of these are private, closed doors, and others are more open to the general attending uh, public. But the number that were devoted to stable coins, that were devoted towards central bank digital currencies, and both of those have a major foundational layer to the advancement of Web3, by the way. But just the fact that they were, you know, not just somebody asked a question in a breakout, but the title of those sessions had to do with the emergence of these technologies, these financial technologies, is another one of the hidden signs of where things are going uh, commercially. Uh, can I can I go on a, another rant here for a second? Would you please, mind? Please, please. So this one I'm going to do is for anybody that might be you know, one, I've got to think that most of the viewership uh, are already bought into what's happening. But just if you want to have a nice Thanksgiving or a nice conversation when you get the cranky people saying, you know, this is all cuckoo. So <laughs> here's one of the best examples of institutional hypocrisy you could ever want. And it's a mic drop if you if you develop it the right way. So one of the most notorious critics of anything in the crypto space has been one of the most successful you know, without question, one of the most successful, uh, sober, pragmatic investors of modern time, and that would be Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, who's been a huge part of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, is famously quoted, famously quoted as saying, I wouldn't give $25 for all the crypto in the world. Full stop. Okay. And so in 2021, Berkshire Hathaway, in two tranches, made almost a $1.3 billion investment into a bank in Brazil. Uh, Now, that wouldn't be really headline for a fund and a firm as large as Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you know, who has a global footprint. So that really wouldn't be a headline. The reason it's a headline is because that particular bank is called New Bank, N-U Bank, right? It sounds like a multi level marketing scheme, to be honest with you. But in any event, it's it's a, a legitimate, massive banking institution in Brazil. But you know what it also happens to be? It's the, it's the largest crypto business in South America, a region that already has adoption per capita well in excess of the United States. And so... You know, it's a rather hip, it's rather hypocritical, and I, I can't imagine that that escaped the 
you know, the, uh, the, the Oracle of Omaha, uh, <laughs> that this was the largest crypto business in South America. Oh, by the way, two weeks ago from the time of this taping, Newbank also announced that they were going to do what? Mint their own coin. <laughs> uh, so it is the mo- it's not the only example of institutional hypocrisy. And what we say to people, whether you want to invest or you want to be an informed citizen, is that when big institutions say, don't look over here, but all they're doing is focusing in that direction, you maybe ought to look at what they're doing. So whether or not it's J.P. Morgan Chase or whether or not it's other major financial institutions like BlackRock and Fidelity Investments, these these are these are uh, you don't need. I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't need a Pokemon Go app to see these signs. They're hiding in plain sight. You don't need night night vision goggles. So anyway, when I tell that to people that are you know really close minded and they realize that behind the scenes but in front of all of us in plain sight with SEC disclosures that Berkshire Hathaway bought into the largest crypto business in South America. I believe uh, Charlie Munger has called it rat poison. You would be right. I left Charlie out of it. You brought, sorry, Charlie. I left, usually usually I bring him up. I think Warren is somebody that it's, it's almost enough, but. I I have poor Charlie's almanac sitting next to me. I I love love it. I love it. And, 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 and none of this is meant to take away from the amazing career that they've had. It's simply to make a a point. It just, it is a point. And and this is, this is what's happening in it. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, they all, they also famously passed on Amazon. And so I, all I'm just trying to say is, is that have a deeper conversation. You have to put the time in to, to kind of understand. And the, the way that we think about, here's what I know for sure, is that I believe that right now, presently today, there exists only 5% of the investment products that will ultimately be here by the end of this decade. Just 5%. You know, going back to J.P. Morgan Chase, their CEO is arguably, you know, uh, you know, we can talk about corporate greed and we can talk about pay inequities, but in terms of doing the job, Jamie Dimon has done a remarkable job uh, a, a prolific chief executive uh, with a biblical reputation for getting results globally. Uh, he is also somebody from the bully pulpit who has talked about how crypto is blah, blah, blah. No bank, no financial institution has been investing more or longer into blockchain technologies, crypto. They even have an entire division devoted to you know, digital assets called Onyx, even though if you listen to his sound bites, you know, you'd think he thought it was the worst thing in the world, maybe akin to rat poison. Uh, And, you know, famously, they even have their own, you know, kind of uh, real estate uh, in Decentraland and other places in, uh, you know, the metaverse or one element of the metaverse. They're probably getting um, about as much traffic as the Chase Bank they just yeah, they the are. You know, look, if they would just if they would just if they would just wise up and say all roads to the metaverse lead through gaming, we would be the world would be in a better place. The, okay? It's I can't depreciate the the digital asset yet. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Somehow I'm already I'm already looking for them to use collateralized debt instruments on real estate holdings and you know, you know, crash the metaverse, but all, all cynicism and teasing aside, I think that we all need to realize that what was originally a white paper, we're, we're approaching Halloween, right? You're going to have a block party probably in your neighborhood and all that fun stuff. And yet it was Halloween just about, you know, a little more than a decade ago when a white paper that, you know, kind of challenged assumptions about medium of exchange, Right was first, you know, delivered to the world by Satoshi, whoever he, she, they are. Right, and what what I love about the industry is is you talked about you couldn't see where Uber would have come from. I gotta think that when the paper was put out into the world, um, they did not see some of what's taking place here in twenty twenty two. No way, absolutely not. In fact, if they thought that central banks would be appropriating some of the the general thinking around those technologies of blockchain and so forth, uh, that that would come out of some of that thinking. Uh, it's The ironies are stunning. Um, and this is one other thing that I think is starting to change. 
central bankers and economists and establishment folk, I think are starting to realize we really blew it uh, back during the crisis. Now, that wasn't a central banking blame pie, right? You want to put a little bit of a sliver, go for it. But, you know, um, this recent inflationary miss by the establishment institutions, for the Fed to have missed this inflationary window that we're living in in the United States right now as badly, has destroyed the credibility uh, for already a uh, institutions that were already damaged with credibility. I think they, I think that has taken a while to sink in for people, and this most recent economic uh, window that we've been living in has really, I think, finally said, okay, uh, maybe we do need to be more reflective. Maybe we do need to think about what the world is going to be like where the U.S. may still be, I believe, will still be the world's reserve currency for another century, at least. But it will not own 98% of the market or 100% of the market. And that's the influence of decentralization. That will be the influence of Web3 businesses and uh, ecosystems we can't even think about or imagine today, to your point earlier. That's what I believe. Yeah. And that honestly is a great transition. We're, we're nearing the top of the hour and I have two traditional closing questions. Oh, great. Uh, and one of them forward looking. Okay. Um, I do want to give you the opportunity. Would you like to give uh, the high level of Rubicon um, quickly? Yeah, just we I'd love really to. to yeah, no, I'd, yeah, lo yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to. I know that wasn't the purpose of the conversation, but I'd love to do that. Look, what yeah. we see is the need for sober Prag. Was that a white claw? Are you are you day drinking already, man? What was that? <laughs> I'm Celsius. Teasing. I know. It's, I knew it's, it. I from the it. audience is the Celsius. What are you doing? I knew it. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I love those. You um, aren't the first person to say that, though. No, man. I'm sorry, but um, you know, it's, we're in the world of podcasts. We can have a little fun. Yeah, uh, exactly. But but, but in in all, in all seriousness, what we saw at Rubicon Crypto were so many people that were getting involved in digital asset investing and did not understand what they were doing. We wanted to connect the dots for individuals and financial advisors with crypto portfolio products that they were already comfortable with and familiar with, but were entirely devoted to the digital asset ecosystem with coins and tokens that were managed in a way that they were familiar with with their traditional portfolios. And so we have some very, very smart people involved at the uh, at the uh, chief investment officer level here at Rubicon Crypto. My co-founder, Mike Rizard, is a Georgia Tech Rhodes Scholar candidate, you know, multiple patent guy in Web2 and has managed a lot of money in his career. And we are pioneering ways to model these portfolios. It's very exciting uh, and gives folks a way that they, they maybe want exposure but they don't want to do it themselves. They don't care about hot storage, cold storage, tepid storage. They just, they want in to the have, ground storage. Yeah, they just want a sleeve of these assets to put in their portfolio. And they would like some other entity to help them with that. That's what we do. It's and, a diversification. And, 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 we edu and we educate. That's what we're doing yeah. with Rubicon. Yeah, I so. love that. I love that. It's very evident that you take the education very seriously Thanks, um, from, from your analogies throughout the show. Um, I want to wrap up the show with um, my two closing questions. The first one is, how do you describe Web3? Yeah, I think it's the, the future of human communication. And, and I, I leave it at that. It's a, it's a, a really, uh, that is a really deep answer in, in like seven words. But it literally will be the way I think we communicate commercially, we communicate personally uh, in every single dimension. Ultimately, I love it. Very succinct. Um, the final question is forward looking. Uh, where do you see yourself and Web3 as an industry in six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in Web3 in five to 10 years? Well, uh, at the Rubicon level in both of those timelines, we continue to see more and more allocation into whatever portfolios we're managing uh, into the Web3 ecosystem. As more projects uh, mature enough that we think there's sufficient liquidity, I think that we'll see more additions in this space, uh, uh, and there'll be a heavy weighting towards that. 
in terms of where I see myself. I, I hope that I can continue over the next six months and looking out more forward, maybe not even uh, seven generations, of course, but I, I hope that, um, that people will look back at some of the commentary from 2022 uh, and it'll be part of a CV of saying, hey, these were guys or Greg was somebody that was thinking um, in a very uh, deliberate way about what the future uh, of money, what the future of investing and what the future of video communication via Web3 look like. I love that. I love that. And what about and I'll, I'll probably be an adjunct professor somewhere in another country too, if we're, if we're going out far enough, let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So, so five to 10 years, is there uh, some, I mean, we've talked about seven generations, so this should be a, a breeze for you. Well, yeah, but you know, like you pointed out, I think you said earlier, it's kind of like the old Alpo dog commercials. And of course, nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about, but it's a dog year, you know, one week, one week in this world right now is like a year. It's like a dog year. So five years, I mean, you know, my, you know, my God, if you could imagine what that would look like. If we, if we look back at the narratives five years ago about technology, I don't think anyone could spell Web3 five years ago. Um, and that's the first time I think probably when I heard the notion of Web3, it was far less um, uh, discussed, obviously, and there was far less innovation going on. Imagine in five years what this looks like. I spoke to a group of Georgia Tech students at the Atlanta Blockchain Center, uh, which is doing some incredible work here in the local uh, Georgia community. And uh, I know you've moderated panels. That's how we connected. But um, that group of, of, of future, you know, kind of blockchain engineers and uh, cryptographers, uh, you look out at that room and you're like, these are cats that are going to make a huge difference when it comes to answering that question you asked me. Mm -hmm. So to see where they are in five to 10 years will help tell the story uh, yeah. and, and to, to, to kind of build on that, taking the less than 1% of the developer resources that we have uh, dedicated to blockchain development uh, right now and expand it fivefold. I mean, that's- Oh, I think, I, th oh, right? I think <laughs> easily. No, I think, I think we're about to see that explosion. And one, not surprisingly, once again, you pick up on the nuance of this. Imagine when you see that concentration of developer talent. Now, interestingly enough, we have a, a very robust research collaboration with the University of Georgia, not Georgia Tech, but the University of Georgia's uh, math department, uh, because we didn't want to have a developer lean. We didn't want to have a blockchain kind of lean into some of the research projects we have going on. We wanted regression expertise or geeks involved you know, and how we're researching the, the, the various parts of the ecosystem. But man, you nailed it. That's what that's why I think you could see that kind of exponential is the amount of developers that are going to be kicking in focused on this, I think is going to be staggering. And those young developers that you talk about that are they, they aren't building poor code on purpose, right? It's inexperience. No. Put no. them five years out and see what they're capable of. Right. Well, there, therein lies, therein lies, I would argue that the, the, there has been a bad code has been uh, agnostic to age. I mean, there is some crap code from people that should know better. It's sloppy. People are trying to make a buck. It's all of the reasons, uh, the, you know, the blame pie is divided into a million slices, right? At the end of the day, um, the repercussions are massive. One of the things that could slow the advancement of the industry, could change the calculus of this conversation, is if we continue to churn out bad code in every dimension of the digital ecosystem, we will have a much heavier regulatory hand. And like it or not, for those that wish for anarchy in the world with no governments and all of that, you know, good for you, you're entitled to that view, that is not realistically going to happen in the next you know, generation. It's not. And so... What I would say is let's not give additional fodder for a politically minded regulator to want to come in and say that, you know, the whole ecosystem is shite and we should be regulating it more aggressively. And we've given so much on a silver platter to those would be detractors in the enforcement and regulatory space. Uh, because, listen, everybody loves decentralization until you get wiped out and then you start looking around saying, well, somebody help me, please get my money back. And that's happening right now. The, the consequences are real. The consequences of people who got blown up, you know, by, you know, 
the Do Kwan antics and, and, and everything else of earlier in 2022, those are real consequences to people. And so, you know, we should, you know, there should be, you know, we shouldn't wa- not want people to, if the code were great yeah. and if the code were awesome, it could be, it should be a regulator's dream. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if the code really is good and the code really is altruistic and it really does provide those protections, that would engineer. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore. Yeah, we'll have to have a follow up. I think there'll be even more developments as we know in this oh my God, uh, yes. hyper dog years version of yep. time that we're living in. So I thanks a lot for it. coming on. I appreciate it. It's a it. pleasure. Thanks for all you're doing. Bye-bye.